Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Our Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather together here today. Your kindness and goodness are all-consuming. We're mindful that so many are walking in darkness. That you have not been on their minds this morning at all. Our hearts are heavy for them. They do not know how desperate their condition is. I pray that our assembly may make you visible unto them. I pray that you will deepen and increase our love for you and one another, and that through it you may awaken dead hearts. Lord, give us understanding and appreciation for the gospel and for the church. May your spirit animate in us a greater passion for your body. Your word says that we are one in Christ. Pray that you would help us to think and behave as one. That you would enable us to understand how unity and diversity is powerful. That it is a great expression of your glory in this world. Even though we are one, we are many. We have personalities, we have interests and giftings that are distinct. We face situations and challenges and opportunities that are different. Lord, make our unity a strength for navigating our differences. Make us a praying people. Make us an empathetic people. A caring people. A faithful people. Make the gospel, Lord, visible through us in this depraved world. We pray that you would do it through and for and because of Christ our Lord. We ask in His name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, we read these words. The man, that is Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. Scripture uses a lot of metaphors to describe the church, the body of Christ, God's people. We're called a temple, a building, of which Christ is the cornerstone. We're compared to a field. We're called a vineyard. We're called family. We're called salt. We're called light. One of the most meaningful descriptions in all of Scripture is that we are called the bride of Christ. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus names His bride. This is what it says. You remember the interaction with His disciples. He said, who do people say that I am? 
Some said John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're another prophet. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And you remember that Peter replied and said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, upon this expression, I will do what? Build my church. And in that moment, Jesus named His people the church. He used it again in Matthew chapter 18 as He was talking about unrepentant people. He said, He who refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church or my bride, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses the same imagery, and he does so in a powerful way. Listen carefully as I read these verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, writes Paul, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I've been shepherding God's people for 34 years. I came here 18 and a half years ago, and I shared with this church then that my desire is not a typical desire in mainstream religious conversations, congregations, belief systems, particularly in the West. That I've traveled all those roads, traveled those roads of trying to um, fulfill modern-day evangelicalism's idea of what the church is. That it's all about statistics and, and reports and pragmatism. 
that I had learned lessons the hard way, that God had put before me as a pastor the true calling of what I think Scripture says the pastor's calling is. That is to shepherd people toward being healthy as a congregation. That's been my desire for the last 18 and a half years here at Crabapple, to build a healthy church. It doesn't matter to me what God deigns to be the size of the church as long as we are healthy. How do we do that? Well, Scripture, I think, is pretty clear in this matter. We are to preach and teach the Word of God faithfully to this end. That we preach and teach the Word of God faithfully. We bring our lives into conformity to the Scripture. And as we do, He, He fashions us into what He has prescribed us to be. We are to grow in His truth, disciplining ourselves according to His truth, guarding and protecting the sheep against false teachers and false teaching, purging sin and unbiblical philosophies and habits, nurturing love and honor for the bridegroom only. In over 34 years, I've seen people resist, even resent this objective. I would submit to you that they're being short-sighted, that they are maybe leaning into suspicions or just plain selfish in many regards. I've heard people say, I've had people say to me, it's my church. Hmm. Others have merely acted as though it belongs to them. Friends, she's not your church. She's not my church. Never has been, never will be. She belongs to the Lord. Imagine some dude imposing his claims or desires on your wife. You'd have a serious conversation with him, wouldn't you? I know I would. And yet, so many times, so often, we, as the creatures, the clay, look to the potter and say, Well, she's my wife. I'll do with her what I want. We must prepare her, the bride of Christ, according to His desires. This is my calling and my passion, and I make no apologies for it. This is something the universal church needs to hear desperately today and adhere to. It's not enough to hear it and it go in one ear and out the other. We are to know the church has been purchased by Christ and for Christ. She exists not for our pleasure, our satisfaction, but for His glory and His glory alone. Last week, Luke skillfully described the church's birth and infancy. It was a lesson in Church 101. Simple, Christ-focused, Spirit-filled. This is our calling. It's a fitting and effective start to this series on healthy church. Something else happened last week. We observed the Lord's Supper. We do this regularly at Crabapple. Why? 
But we're instructed to, right? God tells us in His Word to do this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me until I return. It's a reminder of whose we are and why we are His. And most often, as we did last week, we recite our church covenant immediately following the observance of the Lord's Supper. Why do we do this? Is it merely a ritual added to our liturgy occasionally to kind of flesh things out? Does it have any purpose? Does it seem out of place or as an intrusion to you? I've, I've had people say that. It's a distraction. <laughs> so, well, bless your heart. This sermon series that we're engaging in, that we began last week, in essence, is designed to help us understand better some things about the church and to think particularly about why a church covenant? Why do we have a church covenant? What's it all about? So these messages are going to be tethered directly to the church covenant. Now I know what you're thinking. I thought we took our messages from the scripture. Well, we do and we are. And what I would say is the church covenant is derived from God's Word. Last week in your worship guide, there was an explanation about church covenant. And in there, there was a reference that says, two documents that we have in conjunction with our Bible, and that's something that we Baptists take great, um, shall I say, pride in, that we're people of the Bible. Should be, right? That's good. But there are two other documents that have importance for us as a church. We talk about statements of faith or articles of faith, and we talk about a church covenant. What are they and why, if they are important at all? Our articles of faith basically summarize what we believe. It's a broad brush overview of what we believe is contained in the Scripture that's important for us to rest in. They become core beliefs, if you will. I know the Bible, there's no substitute for the Bible, but to walk up and someone say, well, what does your church believe? And to hand them this book is a little bit daunting. Say, take this home, read it this week, come back and we'll talk about it. It's not very practical, is it? And so creeds and covenants and confessions throughout the years have been used to summarize what we believe is contained in the Bible, at least the beginning point, the foundation of what we believe, so that it's more easily expressed. Our church covenant summarizes how we behave because of what we believe. It, it is an expression of what we think the implications are for what we believe in our lives. Our lives beyond the walls of this building, our lives together, our walk with God. They're not additions to Scripture, they are expressions of it. So, for the next few weeks, we're going to unpack it. I want you, when you stand after a Lord's Supper and recite the church covenant together, that you understand what it says, why it says it, 
and that you do so with some passion because it's personal. So we begin today with a question, who or what are we? Who or what are we? Some people have this idea in minds when you speak of the church as they think of the building. They think of the mortar and the bricks and the glass and the paint and the lights and all those things. It's not true. This is not the church. The building is not the church. You are the church. The individuals in which the Spirit of God dwells. Our church covenant begins by answering this question. Paragraph 1 rests on two scriptures. Luke read one earlier, particularly Romans 10.10. And then Eric just read the other, 1 Corinthians 12.27. Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now this is what our covenant says in the first paragraph. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and supreme treasure of our lives, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. The Scripture offers two answers to the question who we are or what we are, and they're expressed in our church covenant in the first paragraph. We are, first of all, regenerate people, and secondly, we are covenant people. We are regenerate people and covenant people. Notice how Paul begins 1 Corinthians 12, 12-27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. He's giving us another picture for understanding the church. Salt, light, bride body. He calls us a body. Like a human body, it is one body. One body. Many parts. Many parts. Many pieces. Fingers, toes, eyes, ears, kidneys, lungs, elbows, teeth, lips, arteries, veins, knees, hips, None of them can exist alone. Their value and purpose is in their unity. Can I say that again? I don't say many things profound, but I think this borders on being profound. The value of individual parts in your human body is found in the unity of the body. And in like fashion, I would say the value, the value of the members of Christ's church is found in the unity of the one body in Christ. Paul goes on, so it is with Christ. For, 
or because in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. He's not speaking here about water baptism. He's speaking about spiritual regeneration. Spiritual regeneration. Regeneration is one of those theological terms that most of us go, ah. I think regeneration is one of those theological terms that's not discussed nearly enough because we don't understand it. We Baptists have been especially lax through the years in tackling some of these tough theological terms. We'd much rather keep it up here on the surface then we'd have to work our brains to figure out what's going on under the surface. To understand regeneration, you have to understand spiritual death and spiritual life. Spiritual death and spiritual life. Every human being who's ever lived enters this world spiritually dead. We got a new baby in our family this week, a new grandson. We're excited about that. His mom and dad are especially excited about it. Right now in their minds, they think he's the first child born since Jesus with no sin. Even though gently I tried to tell them last night, that's a lie. And they'll find out soon enough, right? But even more profound is that spiritually, he's dead. He's alive, he's breathing, his heart is, is beating, he's eating physically, but spiritually, he's dead. Spiritually, he is separated from the giver of life, the author of life, God himself. Because he's been born into sin, he's been born into a dead race, descended from Adam. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, For, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. What does this mean? It means that no matter the environment, no matter the training, no matter the teaching, no matter how deep the love, how rich the love and instruction can be in his life, his natural state, means that he's going to grow up into being a rebel and an enemy of God. He's on the opposite side from God. And there's not a thing he can do about it. Not a thing he can do about it. He will produce fruit in keeping with his condition. He will never obey God. He will never desire God in His natural state because He is dead to God spiritually. He won't want God. Left to His own devices and His own freedom of choice, He will never, ever, ever desire God. He will seek to run from God. He will seek to resist God. He will pridefully look to God and say, Don't know you, don't want to know you. Because this is the natural state of humankind dead in sin. In bondage to sin. They are destined to die physically 
and forever remain spiritually dead. But God. But God did something fantastic, something supernatural, something that we could not have planned or thought of on our own. God has condescended into this world in order to make that which was dead alive again. Jesus came into this world, He says, in Luke 19 and 10, to seek and to save that which was lost, that which was spiritually dead. He succeeded where Adam failed and fulfilled the law of God. What Adam couldn't do, didn't do, Christ did. Having no sin of his own, he vicariously went and suffered and laid down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice to appease the wrath and judgment of God so that sin could be forgiven. God says he resurrected him from the dead, displaying power over death and sin and the grave. He resurrected him to validate that he had accepted Christ's atonement as sufficient. And he says, whomever acknowledges, admits, confesses their sin, they agree with his diagnosis that they're spiritually dead in sin, and that Christ is their only hope, and puts their trust and believes on Him and Him alone, God says forgiveness is granted, and resurrection life is promised beyond this world. Now in the middle of that, Jesus died to purchase redemption, to pay for sin. But the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit enters into the life of a dead person and relivens, enlivens the heart. He renews, He brings life to the dead, spiritually dead heart. And He puts new desires new wants, a new hope to draw near to God, to want to please God, to want to obey God. This is regeneration. To make new and alive that which was dead. And then there is evidence, there is fruit produced in the life of the one who has been regenerated, and that fruit is repentance, turning from sin and turning to God, and faith, believing in God, trusting in God's truth. Those don't come first. The regeneration comes first. Because remember, before regeneration, you are what? What? You don't believe it? You're dead. Unless God brings life to the soul, there's no turning. There's no faith. This is what Jesus meant in John 3 when Nicodemus asked him, said, We know you've come from God. Tell me, how can a man see the kingdom of God? How can a man see the kingdom of God? And what did Jesus say? You must be born again. You must be born 
of water. You must be born physically, and you must be born spiritually. You must be born again. The world thinks that's crazy. I think that's hope. I think that's hope. Titus 3, 3 through 7, listen carefully. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What an incredible description. We are baptized, submerged in the Holy Spirit. This is regeneration. Not water baptism. Water baptism is the outward sign of what has taken place inwardly. Christ's followers are incorporated into one body, His body. Now, we don't have time to unpack all this today, but the idea of one body is huge. We're going to get to it. We're going to, we're going to move through Ephesians here in a few weeks, and uh, we're going to talk a lot about it. But in one body, there are no dividing walls. There's no dividing walls in your body, are there? These parts... These members are connected. They're interwoven together. In the body of Christ, there are no ethnic divisions. No Jew, no Gentile, he says. No white, black, yellow, brown, red. Divisions. One body. Just like your body's one. The body of Christ is one. Not uniformity, but unity. All the body parts make one body. Now hopefully this doesn't stick a pin in your belief balloon. But honestly, if your beliefs offer sanctuary for ethnic divisiveness and walls, then I hope the truth of the gospel ruptures your balloon. The gospel, the regenerating work of the Spirit is the only true cure for racism, for identity politics, for gender confusion, for economic, educational, religious bigotry. Everything that's wrong in our world, there is but one cure for it, and it is the gospel. The gospel. The gospel brings peace between us and God, and it brings peace between those in one body. True believers do not view God through the world's broken lenses. We must see the broken world through God's redemptive lens. Paul says in verse 18, God arranged the members in one body, each one of them as He chose. It's His body and He has determined the members. He has determined the members. He has purchased them with His blood. He has joined them together as one body. And Christ is the head. Christ is the head.
Covenant describes regenerated people, giving them three names here. He calls those who know Christ as Savior, and we just give it a due consideration to that regenerative work. Those who follow Christ as Lord, and I pray that you don't underestimate the importance of that title. It's not enough to want Christ for what He offers, forgiveness in life. Being part of the body means obeying the head. What would you, your physical body look like if it imitated your spiritual connection to the body? Think about it. Give it a moment. We confess Christ is head of the church, right? Everyone nods. Why'd you just nod your head? Your head told you to, did it not? Everything we do is a function of the mind, of the head. It passes in and through us because the head directs it. You're here because your head organized and activated the rest of you today. Your hands and arms and legs and kidneys and lungs and everything had to come along. What the head said do, that's what they said. Okay, the head's decided we're going. What if your hands, feet, eyes, ears, mouth all stopped obeying your head? Now we see evidence of that sometimes. It's sad. It's hard to see someone who's struggling with a disease where the body parts no longer respond to the mind. There's become some sort of disconnect. Or you see someone who's inebriated. They've put their mind under an influence and the body manifests that. What an ugly, distorted picture it is. I wonder about Christ's body. And how we function. We call Him Lord, but often seek our own agendas in His name. He also says that they are people who honor Christ as supreme treasure. Is He your treasure today? Is He your treasure? How do you know? Can you get along without Him? Can you get along without Him? Matthew 13, 44 through 46 offers a great picture for us. It says the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is teaching here, He says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it back up so no one else would find it. And then he goes off and he sells everything else he has in order to buy to purchase that field. He's all in on that field. Why? Because of the treasure that's there. One of the reasons that so many professing Christians today are not all in on Jesus is they're not convinced that He's their greatest treasure. They think this world holds the treasure for them. They think money, they think relationships in this world, they think all the pleasures of this world, that that's the greatest treasure. They're going to be sorely disappointed when eternity rolls around. Again, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. So 
So what are we? We're regenerate people, born again, one body in Christ. We are also covenant people. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? Generally speaking, a covenant is a promise, is it not? You enter a covenant when you get married. You make promises to each other. You take vows. Until death do us part, you say. Now, unfortunately in our culture today, those vows don't mean much, do they? We hold to them until selfishness gets in the way and we kind of start thinking other things are more important. You enter a covenant when you purchase a home. You enter into a covenant with the bank to take out the mortgage. You also enter a covenant with the other homeowners in your subdivision, don't you? Sadly enough, some of us take that covenant more seriously than we do our covenant with Christ. Yahweh is a covenant God. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. His covenants or promises are almost always unconditional. That means they're one-sided. He says, I'm unfailing. (laughs) Human beings, you're always failing. But I'm unfailing. And so the promises for this covenant rest in me. I'll make sure that they occur. He's unable to fail in fulfilling what He promises. He does, however, attach stipulations to those in covenant with Him. Things He expects them to do because they're in covenant with Him. Not to earn the covenant, but to remain in covenant with Him. You go all the way back to Adam. It's not called a covenant per se, but didn't God make a covenant with Adam? Genesis 2, 15-17, listen. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, commanded the man, saying, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. All this beautiful creation I've made, Adam, it's yours. Oh, the food, the beauty, the creatures, it's all yours. It's under your jurisdiction. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. One tree, God says. Here's the stipulation. Don't touch this tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We know the story, right? None of us would be spiritually dead had Adam not failed in keeping God's command. Noah, God made a covenant with Noah after the flood, Noah and his sons, and he put the rainbow in the sky. He said, as a sign that I will keep this covenant. And along with that covenant, the expectation was that you will be fruitful, multiply, just like he told Adam. Bring this creation and to submission to me, to honor me. Abram, 
Genesis chapter 15, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, pieces of sacrifice. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites and Rephraim and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Gergeshites, and the Jebusites. And then he added circumcision as a sign of the covenant. In Genesis 26, the covenant that God had made with Abram was reiterated to his son Isaac. In Genesis chapter 28, the covenant is again reiterated to his son Jacob. Then we know the story of Egyptian bondage. Israel migrated to Egypt. Why? Because God had sent Joseph there to use him to provide for the people in times of famine. They would have perished had God not placed Joseph there. And God used that situation to bring his people into Egypt. And there they ended up in bondage. The scripture says after Joseph died, the next king came on the front and he didn't know Joseph, hadn't, didn't remember. Nobody was telling the story of what had happened. And they began to fear the people of Israel because they were increasing in number. So they assimilated them into bondage, turned them into slaves. And there they were for 400 years. And then, Exodus 2, 24, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And He sent forth a deliverer named Moses. And He brought them out of captivity in a miraculous, supernatural way. And then at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, God gave stipulations for His covenant. You are my covenant people. I have liberated you so that you may worship me. You are my people. Now, what does that mean for you? It means for me, I've given you a land. I've given you promises. I've given you a provision. I will be your God, your glory, everything you need. What does that mean for you? It means I expect you to carry my name in a certain way in this world. I expect you to live according to my desires in order that my glory may be renowned through this world. And so we receive the commandments, the law from God. And they gladly received them. They said, yes, oh, bless your name, Lord. We will be your people. Until Moses spent a week out of their sight. And they began to doubt God. They began to wonder, what's going to happen to us? It's just us. We don't trust Him. And they broke the covenant. But God did not go back on His promise. God did not go back on His promise. And we see that played out through the Old Testament, don't we? God continuing to draw them back. God disciplines and draws them back. And they repent and they're looking to, yes, we'll be your people. Yes, we'll be your people until God looks up and here they go again, wandering, doing their own, seeking their own pleasure. Till finally we come to Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them in the, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. What? Not just on a tablet. Not just external writing that they are to live up to, to obey. But I will put it in them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Hebrews 9 tells us about the fulfillment of that. That Christ Himself, going through nothing that human hands could do, but by His own blood, has made a way into the Holy of Holies, and He is the mediator of this new covenant. In other words, He is the cause of this new covenant. And He empowers us to believe and to obey the terms of the covenant. One body in covenant together. A church covenant is summary of how we agree to live as His people together. Our covenant, as I said earlier, is derived from Scripture, how God wants us to live. It does not include every detail. It does not include every command. But it is a good and faithful representation of God's stipulations. Notice the tone in our church covenant. We do now in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly. Sounds very much like an oath, doesn't it? Like a solemn pledge. I, I've heard those kind of tones coming from a wedding ceremony. Now I charge you here in the presence of all these witnesses and before God, these vows and promises that you have made to each other. Enter into covenant with one another as one body. Not separate individuals, not autonomous, not independent parts. You lose and forfeit all meaning and function and value alone. We are one body comprised of many parts, many members in Christ. In Christ. There's no lone rangers in this walk with Christ. No lone wolves. If you're walking alone, friend, you're in trouble. You're trusting in your own righteousness, and your righteousness is but filthy rags before Him. The only thing that's getting us to God is being in Christ. God's Word's clear about how God views the church. It is the body of Christ the bride of Christ, and the members are God's people redeemed for Christ. We're not a club for fostering relationships. We're not a community center. We're not a social change agency. We're not a humanitarian organization. We're not a political action group. And we're not a religious think tank. Now, I'm not saying we might not engage in some of those activities, but I'm saying that's not our purpose. None of those things express our purpose. We are a divine organism. 
We're a body. We are Christ's body. We are many regenerated people grafted into Christ, born again, justified, sanctified, glorified as His body. We are His body and He is our head. We are growing up into the fullness for His glory. We assemble that we might worship Him. We assemble that we might grow in knowledge of Him. We assemble to strengthen one another in this journey. We assemble to distinguish ourselves from the world. We assemble to become like Christ. We assemble to preach the gospel clearly and faithfully. We assemble to administer the ordinances faithfully. We assemble to discipline ourselves in the faith. We assemble to make Christ and His gospel visible in this dark world. This is at the heart of why we covenant together. To move forward together for His glory and for His honor. After all, we are His wife. We are His church, not our own. And Father, we thank You and bless You for who You are. We give You glory today. We thank You, Lord, for saving us. We thank You for grafting us into Your body. I pray that, Lord, You might... Stir our hearts that we might understand and appreciate this incredible gift that we have. And that, Lord, we might also understand the dilemma that faces so many in our world who do not know you. And that we might be faithful, Lord, actively proclaiming your gospel truth. And that we might be faithfully demonstrating your glory in the way that we live and conduct ourselves outside of this body as we go through the community, and Lord, with one another, as your body, your bride, here in this community. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.